You're listening to the Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from guest speaker Matthew Lethan. If you've been worshiping with us in the past few weeks, you know that we are tracking Jesus' superiority as we look at the book of Hebrews, see what it has to say about his control over the cosmos. In the first few verses, that was stated very plainly that Jesus was involved in creation. We move from the cosmos to angelic beings. He's greater than them. We know that they do his bidding. Think about his ministry, which before he actually ministers, he is in the wilderness. He's tempted. And following that 40 days, he's ministered to by angels. The other end of his ministry in Gethsemane, as he prays in distress, he's arrested. And we learn there that he could have called upon legions of angels to defend him if that were the plan. And so they do his bidding, not the other way around is what the author would say. Last week, Pastor Andrew talked us through Jesus and his humanity and how he's not just superior over humanity, but he's superior for humanity. And we'll see in the weeks to come how this covenant which Jesus oversees and administers, this covenant of his blood, is superior to that which has been revealed previously. Everything that God has spoken before the covenant in Christ is to be revered as higher and better and permanent. We now know that sermon, oh, sorry, that Hebrew sounds and reads like a sermon. More than any New Testament book, Hebrews preaches the Old Testament. It blends those deep theological truths and it takes those realities and then leads into exhortations or encouragements for the church. And these particular believers, this audience, probably, probably shared a Jewish heritage. You might recall that they faced some adversity. They were tempted to abandon their commitment to Jesus, particularly as the gospel expanded into Gentile areas. And as that rift between Jew and Christian began to widen, these believers, you could say, were looking back over their shoulders and wondering if they'd made the right move. So today I want to introduce you uh, to Hebrews chapter 3. And in those first six verses, we'll see a synchresis or a comparison. This is a rhetorical effect that the author will use to pit both Jesus and Moses together. Now we might come to this text and think such a comparison is unnecessary. But as we'll see, the vast majority of Christians sharing a Jewish background in particular the vast majority considered Moses to be the greatest person who ever lived. So our author, inspired by God's Spirit, was prompted to explain Jesus' superiority, even to this man, Moses, who shepherded Israel out of its Egyptian captivity and into the land promised to Israel's patriarchs. And so I have called today's message a tale of two shepherds. Now, our passage does not explicitly mention shepherding, uh, but I do believe this is a helpful image and word picture which will help us process, process what this book attempts to do. 
by comparing these two leaders. We'll see that their ministries both dovetail with that of a shepherd. They were given charge of God's people or his flock. They were entrusted with teaching God's ways and safeguarding the people when there was danger threatening, danger that would scatter them, that would send them running to all corners. They would remain through the flock in all kinds of weather through their journey. They would remain through the final resting place, final resting place. And in this sense, Moses was taking them to a physical resting place, right? <clears throat> the land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, this land that Aaron has just visited with his own eyes and seen. Jesus would be taking them to a spiritual resting place. All of his sheep would be in his presence forever. But even in the face of great peril, these men interceded for their flocks when they went astray, flocks that earned God's wrath. These two shepherds put themselves in harm's way for the good of their sheep. So in many ways, both Moses and Jesus exemplified God's presence with the flock. And I think that's why the author compares these two. They're both affirmed as faithful, And uh, as believers, we're taught that the ministry of the Son, who, who, who we have come to follow, the Son who they have come to follow, that ministry has in fact eclipsed the ministry of Moses, great as it was. Well, let's read today's passage to get a sense of where we are heading. You can turn to the Pew Bibles, um, if you brought your own copies of the text or, or have them on your phone. And of course, the verses will be projected behind me as well. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Sorry, I just read that. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Chapter 3 continues this rhetorical progression from greater to lesser. We've seen from the first few verses of this book that the author narrows the scope of comparison, beginning with the cosmos, moving to angels, and progressing to humanity. And now, for six brief verses, that comparison is fixed squarely upon Moses. We read that he was worthy of honor just as a faithful servant within God's household is worthy of honor. If heaven has a hall of fame, you might expect that Moses has his own wing devoted to all that he did and accomplished for God's people. We might expect to find the sandals he took off at the burning bush. Maybe next to the sandals, the staff with which he raised to part the Red Sea. 
Maybe the stone tablets that he brought down from Sinai. All of those would be in his hallway. Maybe the jar of manna that he was told to collect as evidence of God's provision in the wilderness. He was indeed faithful. I want to briefly highlight two words that occur in this passage, and I think that will help us uh, see the significance, again, of where this text fits in the broader argument. Verse 5 quotes Numbers twelve seventeen, and in this context, Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, are rebuked for questioning Moses, for kind of conniving behind his back and saying, well, God speaks to us too. He doesn't just speak to Moses, does he? And so the author of Hebrews is lifting this out of Numbers 12, 7 to say that God, when he speaks to prophets, he speaks in a variety of ways, but only with Moses has he spoken face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And because he does that, Moses is considered faithful. The larger picture of this faithfulness, which started in chapter 2 and introduced this idea of high priest and Jesus' role as our intercessor, this larger picture of faithful started in 2, but it will carry on. And what the author is trying to do is contrast what's coming. So we'll see faithful, 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 faithful. And beginning in verse 7, we now have a historical example of Israel being unfaithful. So in a sense, he's priming them for what to be in light of where he's going, of what not to be, of the generation that hardened their heart. So faithful is our first word. Our second word study, also densely packed in this uh, short list of verses, is house. In this context, house is going to refer to those people who belong to God, his flock. In our shepherd illustration, the sheep of God's family. This is significant probably because this use of house harkens back to 2 Samuel 7, where God refers both to the Davidic dynasty as a house. He's going to establish that house for David permanently. It also refers to a physical dwelling place, house, in the sense that David commissioned Solomon to build a house for the Lord in 2 Samuel 7. House and house. So this creative play on words, quite possibly, our author is tapping into because his audience is cognizant of Jesus coming from David. He chained together many psalms in verse 1 to highlight David's uh, offspring, Jesus, and Jesus' Davidic origins. So again, house is going to trigger for them the Davidic dynasty. And in doing so, he's going to affirm the believers to embrace their identity as part of God's house. But they'll do that, they'll show who they really are by persevering in their confession of Jesus as apostle and high priest. Those are designations never given to Moses, apostle and high priest. House, you are God's house. Have you ever noticed how pervasive Moses is in the New Testament? The NIV that I'm using mentions him 85 times by name. There are obviously many more references, but by name, from Matthew to Revelation, there are 85 occurrences in the NIV. Apparently, Moses was a pretty big deal, even among the Christian authors. 
So what I went ahead and did is I, I took those 85 and I kept it quite simple. I tried to splice topical categories that I could shove each of these references into. And what I wanted to do was give an example from each of those five categories where Moses is mentioned. First, and he occurs quite often in legal references. So I've termed this legal issues. And whether it's marriage or divorce, whether it's some clarification of the law, uh, Moses taught you this, but I tell you this. Oops. Legal issues tops our list. And in Mark 10, 35, Jesus says, it was because of your hearts that they were hard that Moses wrote you this law. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses gave you this law. We move from legal issue category to the transfiguration. And this is prominent in at least three of the Gospels. Maybe all four. Luke 9.30 describes that two men, and this is a longer passage, Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Moses does eventually see the promised land from the top of this hill with Jesus and Elijah in his glorified state. So that's our second use of Moses. Our third use are historical references or historical litanies. There's a very long one in Acts 7 as Stephen is being martyred. As he's stoned, he feels the need. He's encouraged by the Spirit to lecture the Sanhedrin on Israel's history. And as he does so, he mentions Moses many, many, many times. We'll see it also at the end of Acts when Paul is before Agrippa. He gives this historical litany of the history of his people. But this one example in Acts 7, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you, like me, from your own people. And again, this is Stephen quoting from the Old Testament. Doctrine or theology is my next category. And um, there are a few references here, but one in John 14, the prologue, or John 17, excuse me. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think it's important here that we see Moses isn't denigrated or lessened. He's not put down. And our author in Hebrews doesn't put him down either. In fact, Moses would probably cringe at such a comparison. What we know about him is that he was actually quite reluctant, wasn't he, in his calling. Please send someone else. I don't speak that well. We're told in Numbers 12 that he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. So our authors make the comparison, but they don't put him down. He is a larger-than-life figure in Israel's history. The final category is identity or testimony, and these are the uses in which Moses is cited to reveal Christ's significance. And I think this is, for us, the most uh, pertinent category in understanding Hebrews 3. We'll just take one verse for now, but I do want to camp out here a little bit. It's so significant that when Jesus describes who he is, he does mention Moses, but to say that he's the one who forecasted me, who wrote about me. John 5, 46, as Jesus says to his accusers, his opponents, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. The implication being, they didn't recognize Jesus, so they didn't believe Moses. They thought they did. 
So this is the last place we come to, the last theme in which Moses has cited in order to show uh, that Jesus is preeminent. And so in these references, these, this family of references, we see that Moses was the forerunner of Jesus and that his legacy was one of subservience. He pointed to the Messiah. In fact, we see that Moses' testimonies were intended to reveal that someone like him, but ultimately someone greater than him, would be coming. And so we camp out here for a little while. I'm going to read to you a few more just to show that Jesus' status was greater. And I know you know this, but we're thinking about our brothers and sisters who are receiving this letter from the Hebrews, the Hebrews author. Luke 24, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is after he'd risen. He's speaking to the two on the road to Emmaus. Didn't recognize him. Same chapter. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. John 1.45 Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John 5, 45 and 46, we've seen this in part, but here's a little wider context. Jesus says, But, I do, but do not think, I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes rest or on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Finally, we look at Acts. There's a couple uh, citations there of Moses. Again, very powerful. Acts 3.22, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen. He tells you. Finally, Acts 26 but God has helped me to this very day. This is Paul before Agrippa giving his testimony. He's helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. So to the believers who receive the Spirit, this dynamic between Moses evidencing Jesus was not news to them. The Spirit was leading them into this understanding as they heard and read the Old Testament. But I want you to see that the breadth of these categories helps us appreciate why the authors of Hebrews needed to spell out these distinctives between Moses being faithful within God's house and Jesus being faithful over God's house. We recall that the Jewish believers were liable to face accusations and maltreatment for violating their customs and convictions that they had been taught from infancy. Probably few of us, if any, understand the pressure they likely faced to change their confession of Jesus as apostle and high priest, as we read in chapter 3, verse 1, that this was their confession. I thought it was helpful to briefly read the charges that they would have heard um, in the book of Acts, Luke, very detailed accounts, wanting to preserve the history of the growth of the church from Jerusalem outward to 
Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. <clears throat> I want to capture a couple episodes in Acts uh, in which the Christians were accused of downplaying, even forsaking, Mosaic authority. So you won't see this on the slides. I want to give your eyes a rest. We've read a lot. Uh, but just listen to some of these charges. As Stephen is accused and brought before the synagogue of freedmen uh, in the Sanhedrin, here's what we hear. This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. He's referring of, they're referring, of course, to Jesus saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. They heard that as a threat to the destruction of their temple complex. And so the Christians, uh, you know, that accusation stuck to them, that they held to such a teaching. Acts 15, a little further, the Jerusalem Council, right? In the big picture, the reason these pillars of the faith are meeting is to decide what to do with the Gentiles that are coming to faith. To what degree, and if at all, should we require them to observe Mosaic traditions? Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This was the good word of the day, which prompted the council to meet. Further on in chapter 15, that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, right? These are believers, educated folks. They stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. We move to Acts 21. After one of Paul's missionary journeys, he comes to Jerusalem. The brothers and sisters greet him. But then they say, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you, Paul, teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. This was a problem. Again in chapter 21, and we'll end with this on our examples of the, of the charges that Christians were hearing. This is when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. Jews had come down from the Asian provinces where he ministered, the, the provinces in modern-day Turkey. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Right. If you and I were first century Christians, we would be afraid to have this said about us. We would be trotting a path that 12 to 1500 years have been well worn and we would be diverting from it claiming to have a greater revelation. Suffice it to say that Moses' ministry to foreshadow Jesus and his covenant was misunderstood. This confusion would remain a stumbling block for many as the church gained traction. At the time the book of Hebrews is circulating in the middle of the first century, the Gospels, which testified about Jesus' life and ministry, 
the Gospels were likely not fully published. Or if they were, they hadn't been circulated widely. But even those that were probably couldn't be read by the average Christian, by the majority of believers. They would not have tapped into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to defend their beliefs. Much of the believer's knowledge of Jesus probably would have been anecdotal, second or third hand knowledge, uh, or captured in memorable poems or hymns. Authoritative, certainly, but they couldn't just turn the chapter and verse unless it was the Old Testament and in the Greek language. And in those scriptures which they would go to hear as they fellowshiped, what would they hear? They would hear about Lord, the Lord's deliverance of his people through Moses in the Exodus from Egypt. They would hear about how the system of laws and ceremonies instituted through Moses were God's instruments of grace for maintaining covenant faithfulness. They'd heard this every week of their life. What's more, they would hear from the historical and prophetic books that would enforce the reality that the captivity and the exile their people faced was the direct result of failing to uphold Mosaic covenant faithfulness. That's what they would hear as they fellowshiped from the scriptures. I thought it would be useful for us now to look at some extra biblical sources. We'll listen to two men highly respected um, in the Greco-Roman world as they captured life in the first century. And we glean so many insights and scholars lean on these two to understand not only the Christian movement, but Judaism in the first century in that ancient uh, backdrop. And in doing so, in sharing these two uh, authors, I want us to glean a sense of just how greatly Moses was revered at the time surrounding Jesus' ministry. We hear first from Philo, a Jewish philosopher based in Egypt who was a contemporary of both Jesus and Paul. He dies about 50 AD. <clears throat> and his goal is to defend the Jewish way of life. He was uh, subject to great discrimination, a pogrom instituted by the Romans against his native Alexandrians. And he's actually sent to Caligula, the emperor in Rome, as part of the embassy to stop the madness of hurting the Jews. So in this apology for the Jews, Philo ascribes great esteem uh, upon Moses as religious and civic legislator. Therefore, whether Moses spoke being influenced by his own reason or because he was inspired by the deity, the Israelites referred every word of his to God. And though many years have passed, I cannot tell the exact number, still they have never altered one word of what was written by him but would rather endure to die 10,000 times than to do anything in opposition to his laws and to the customs which he established. Our second ancient witness is Josephus, who documented Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. As an eyewitness, he was a historian serving the Roman emperor who had been captured during the insurrections in Israel. In this work, Josephus argues for the proper place of the Jews in antiquity. He joins Philo in esteeming Moses as a national hero 
But let us consider his first and greatest work. For when it was resolved on by our forefathers to leave Egypt and return to their own country, this Moses took the many ten thousands that were of the people and saved them out of many desperate distresses and brought them home in safety. And certainly it was here necessary to travel over a country without water and full of sand to overcome their enemies and during those battles to preserve their children and their wives and their prey. These two extra biblical sources confirm what the Old Testament and the author of Hebrews summarize. Moses was a faithful servant within God's household. He weathered rebellions and challenges to his authority as he shepherded the Israelites from Egypt to the land of promise. He interceded for the people when they lacked life's essentials, and he pleaded for the Lord's mercy again when they deserved his wrath. So with these considerations about Moses' stature in mind, we begin to appreciate the relevance of our author's comparison between Jesus and Moses. The flock's allegiance was at stake. Hebrews is very aware of Israel's legacy of turning away. And our author doesn't want these sheep to be led away by internal or external calls to follow Moses, not to give way to fear or to blend in or to do what was popular. Yes, he had been a faithful shepherd, but with the advent of Jesus, devotion to the Mosaic way of life had to give way to God's latest revelation in his son. And although this confession would remain costly, it would be a couple hundred years before Christians were afforded the religious protections that Jews would enjoy under the Romans. Before that happened, the church was to persevere in their faith. And its loyalty to the chief shepherd, which Jesus has called in Hebrews 13, it's that loyalty that would be the mark of their spiritual status. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but I hope you've seen the value of delving into the background study a bit to consider this comparison between Moses and Jesus. I realized that um, that was a lot of text. Uh, and I want to return to our passage one last time. I want to highlight the lone imperative of these six verses. This was what the believers were to extract from this instruction, and by extension, what we can take with us into our week. So one more time from Hebrews 3. That singular takeaway is this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. To contemplate, to consider, to examine. In particular, to consider his dual role as apostle, an ambassador of God, one who is sent, and his role as high priest, the chief mediator between God and man. This reality is what they had previously confessed. This is where their loyalty was to remain. And the same verb in the command form, as it is here, also appears in Luke 12. In Luke 12, Jesus asks, asks his listeners to consider the ravens which God feeds. They do not reap, they do not sow, they do not store away. They are simply cared for. He says, consider the ravens. Again, he asks his audience, Luke 12, to consider the wildflowers which God clothes in splendor. 
They neither spin nor toil as they grow. And yet, the simplicity of their beauty outshone even Solomon in his glory. Consider the wildflowers, he says. What beautiful pictures of a heavenly shepherd's provision for his flock. As we close, I have a few questions for all of us to meditate on. You've got some in your bulletin at the bottom, but I've got some simple ones here in our few minutes remaining. Based on our study of this text and all the material we sifted through and our shepherd theme, I ask you to consider now how you might answer the following questions. First, what has the Lord led you out of? If we phrase this another way, where has he taken you out of to be where you are today spiritually? Obviously, the Israelites could point to Egypt. Um, but as Christians, do you identify as former citizens of the kingdom of darkness who are spiritually dead? Where has the Lord led you out of? Secondly, who has the Lord used to shepherd you? None of us have gotten here on our own. This could be a long list of folks, but who are those people who fed you spiritually, who protected you? Who lived by example, sacrificed for you? Who are those people? Thirdly, how do you discern the Lord's call? There's this really fun game to see, um, usually at VBS or maybe in some Sunday schools where uh, children and a partner will pair off, one will be the shepherd, one will be the sheep. And before the chaos begins, the, they'll, they'll get together and, and they'll make a prearranged signal. Maybe it's a clicking noise. Maybe it's a whistle, something that those two share. And when the game starts, the child that's designated the sheep will move to the middle of the room, close their eyes, maybe they're blindfolded, and the shepherd will stand on the outside. There's this ring of kids on the outside, and all the shepherds start making their calls. And you can imagine, it's just chaotic. And the sheep with its eyes closed in the cacophony of distractions needs to find their shepherd. It's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, and the audience of Hebrews maybe found themselves in a similar situation. How do you discern the Lord's call? In that cluster of voices. Finally, where has the Lord promised to lead you? Are you on destination somewhere? A while ago, I wrote a paper for school, and as I studied shepherding, I started to think of the scripture as the process of one moving from one pasture to our final resting place. Beginning in Eden, God shepherds his people to that final resting place in Revelation. And I thought maybe scripture in its entirety is an image of being shepherded by the Lord. Where has he promised to lead you? Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
This is a bit of an impromptu idea, but I want to just finish by reading Psalm 23. Um, we have an amazing shepherd, and I can't think of a better passage which really solidifies this idea of shepherding. After I read, I'll pray for us, and following the prayer, we'll have some special music um, that, again, will help us engage in this idea of being led by our shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 captures an intimate personal concern the Lord extends to each of us. We now have an opportunity to respond to our shepherd through prayer and song. Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just uh, stand before you, sit before you, humbled today. Thank you for the countless ways that you minister to us. We thank you for the study in Hebrews and just for revealing the superiority of your Son. Uh, we think of John 10 and all the allusions to shepherding that Jesus makes. He calls himself the Good Shepherd. And he defines that by saying he lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't run when the wolves come to scatter the flock. And we thank you for his example. We thank you for the evidence of his leading us. And we just want to respond to you with humble hearts. We want to thank you for those you put in our lives to guide us spiritually, to mentor us, and even for giving us opportunities to shepherd others as we travel toward your final resting place. We thank you for the musicians and, and how they've led us today and, and what they'll bring us now. We just want to commit our day to you and ask you to uh, keep in mind Jesus, our author and perfecter of our faith, also our high priest and apostle. It's in, him, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed day.